Welcome to Village Church of Gurney podcast. This week, it's Easter. The name of the sermon is called Resurrection Hope. And Pastor David will be preaching from John 20, 1 through 10. Let's join Pastor David now. Well, we, um, we need hope. And we need hope, and that's something that we've known even before the events of these past two, two and a half, three years. It's a human need. It's, 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 a, it's a need that is universal to every society, every time, every culture, every person. We need a source of hope. Times when we are in despair or discouraged or confused or lost, we need a sense of hope. Some people will look inward, and they'll look for hope within They'll double down on the efforts of finding all that is good with inside of ourselves and lean into that for hope. But the challenge, the difficulty, the problem with that is that if we're honest with our hearts, we know all too well that we bring brokenness with us, inside of us. We bring sin from inside of us out. And even if you wiped the slate clean, if you will, even if you plucked us and put us on a deserted island to start over, even if you washed the world clean and just put one family in a boat that they might survive and be carried through, you know what's going to happen? Sin's going to come with us because it's inside of us. It Trojan horses itself inside of our hearts, and it carries on. So if we look in for that hope, we're going to be left wanting, discouraged, disillusioned. Some look inward. Some look outward for hope. For the decay or confusion or or chaos of a world, some people will look out. Yet, yet, the problem there is, as history has shown over and over and over and over again, that the same advances in technology or the same ideas for society that, though intended to build and restore and heal, have the same ability to destroy, to tear down, to divide. We need hope, and everyone's going to look somewhere for hope. And in a unique way, the disciples on that first day, that first Easter Sunday, needed hope as well. Let me show you. Meet me there. Uh, John chapter 20. uh, That's what we're going to be looking at today. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. If you have access to Scripture, turn there. Uh, If you're using the Bible in the chair, either right in front of you or the one that you're on, the express, uh, the express lane to that page is 1077. If you want to meet me there. John chapter 20, but I'm going to actually start reading in John 19, verse 38. This is when Jesus is buried, the days before, Good Friday, if you will, the day be- days before the resurrection. It says in verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, Uh, but uh, secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it, in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, verse 41 says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, 
And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, John, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, many of us, of course, know the story of the resurrection over and over, but for a moment, suspend your understanding of how this story unfolds. Appreciate this moment. They don't know where the body is. The stone is rolled away. And Mary Magdalene and those with her, it says, we, the other women who are with her, they say, he's taken, someone's taken the body. We don't know where he is. Now, imagine this. This is the Jesus that has walked with you. This is the Jesus that you sat under his teaching. This is the Jesus that you have seen heal people and perform miracles. This is the Jesus who who knows people's thoughts and minds before they speak. This is the Jesus who cares tenderly and multiplies food and walks on water. And he has died, which is let alone difficult enough. Now, a couple days later, they don't know where he's gone. The body is gone. And the stone is rolled away. And Mary Magdalene and those with her, they, they suspect Foul play, something's up, something's going on. That's why she says, do you notice the the verb that she used? Verse 2, they have taken the Lord. So she's assuming somehow, some way, a, a group of people rolled back this stone and took the body of the Lord, her Lord, her Messiah, her King. And we do not know where They have laid him. And suspecting that something's wrong, they race over to Simon Peter and John, the other disciple, and then they tell them. And hearing this news, uh, Peter and John bolt. They race. They sprint. They run to the location of the tomb. Look at what it says in these next verses, 3 through 6. So Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, But the other disciple outran Peter. John outruns Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in the tomb, the grave would have been low, so you'd have to crouch down and stoop to peer in. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloths there. Let me pause at this point in the story. Notice how simultaneously, as everything is speeding up, the narrative is slowing down. Imagine hearing this news for the first time. It would have been an adrenaline rush. It would have been instant confusion. Wait, what? We saw him. We saw him crucified. People saw him buried, and now he's gone? And in this burst of adrenaline, they run to the tomb, and the narrative slows way down in giving us all of these details. It, it essentially outlines almost every step of the way of Peter and John going to the tomb. They leave together. They're running together. Uh, um, but John outruns Peter, verse 4. He stoops in. He looks. He sees linen cloths lying there. He didn't go in. Then Peter uh, 
comes after him and runs in and sees, and all of these details. You might wonder, why such detail? Why such painful, I mean, every single step of this journey? And there might be, there might be many things to apply or imply from the details that the gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, why we receive these things. But I think at least a couple things are helpful and encouragement to us. I think first we see in this moment the humanity of the disciples. These are people just like you and just like me, ordinary, everyday people. And have you noticed, do you remember back to a time in your life where you heard, just in a moment, you heard hard news or big news or heavy news or there was a crisis that happened in, in either in your family or your place or the nation or the world. Notice, you can remember to eerie detail the, 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 the situation of that time. You can remember, how many of us have, I remember the time and the place when, fill in the blank, when something difficult happened. And you can remember what room you were in, what you were wearing, who you were with, what angle the sun was coming through the window. You can remember uh, uh, what you had eaten. You can remember exactly the words of what someone had said. And in that moment of crisis, almost with photographic memory, you can't remember all the details, can you? But the ones that you remember, you will never, ever, 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 ever forget. And I think that's a snapshot, a little glimpse of what we're seeing into the gospel writer John, inspired by the Spirit as he's writing these things down. Imagine running to the tomb with Peter. Imagine you are John, confused and, 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 and struck, and, and these details are just etched in your mind. We're getting a glimpse of the humanity of the disciples, everyday people like you and me following after Jesus, needing hope. And I think we also see from these details the historicity of the story. The specificity of the details show, that, show the validity of this story that we are seeing unfolding here, eyewitnesses to this account. The events happened too close together. The events are seen by too many people too quickly for this just to be a made-up story. If maybe one person witnessed it and a couple weeks later, a couple months later, a couple years later, they went out to share and, and make up a story about what had happened, maybe you could pull the wool over the eyes of an entire society. But if this is seen by Mary Magdalene and the women who are with her and the two disciples immediately that first day, and already they are running and telling and sharing the information is getting out too quickly from too many people for, the, for there to have any time to make up a story or to fabricate this as if it was a fairy tale. These details show us and these witnesses show us this happened. It's history. It's real. That at that time, the time of the readers, you could go talk to people who were eyewitnesses of these events. It really, really, really happened. Now look at verse 7. And the face cloth, as they're peering into the tomb, they see the linen cloths there. Verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but it was folded up in a place by itself. And these details, again, you might just think, okay, the, the, the narrator, the gospel writer is just explaining what happened. 
But see the significance of what this is explaining. Remember what Mary Magdalene said? She first sees the stone rolled away, the tomb empty. They've taken him. That's all, that's, how else can I make sense of this? He is dead. The body's not there. Someone must have come and picked him up and taken him and run away with him. Perhaps someone stole him. But the very fact that those cloths are there answer that question. Now, I'm not a professional grave robber. Isn't that good news? <laughs> uh, but if I decided to pick up grave thievery and robbering as a profession, we would know pretty quickly that if you got a if you got a bolt in, you know, roll back this massive stone guarded and uh, sealed to know if anyone had tampered with it, and you saw a body there, I'm pretty sure the first thing that I wouldn't do with my crew who had come in to steal this body, the first thing I wouldn't do is unwrap the body. You know, you've got your ski mask on, you've got to get in, you've got to get out, you've got the getaway car, security cameras, guards walking around, you know, all, all the works. You're not going to take the time to unwrap the body. Remember, it was Jesus' body was bound with 75 pounds of spices included, and the face cloth is folded very neatly. So you think, okay, if there's a group of robbers and they come in, hey, we got, we got five minutes, we got to get this. They're unwrapping, and one of them goes, oh, a face cloth. You know, I'm taking an origami class online. I could fold that for you. I could fold it into an elephant. I could fold it into a flower. I could fold it into a snake. That was week one. That's what I learned. Yeah, I'll just fold it into a square. It looks like we're in a hustle. I better hurry up and get this. It's not going to happen. It shows that the body wasn't stolen. No one came in and snatched the body and absconded with it and ran away. It shows that these events, again, are actual. They happened. Robbers didn't take him away. They wouldn't unwrap him. They wouldn't uh, fold the face cloth. We know that. It answers Mary Magdalene's question of what is going on. And if he was not stolen, and if he truly is risen, this little detail of the burial cloth there show the incredible power of the risen king, of our risen Lord, that death cannot hold him, and that he leaves the burial cloths there. How do you defeat someone when death cannot defeat them? How do you keep him down? How do you keep him pinned? How do you keep him in a box? How do the forces of Satan and darkness destroy him? When death itself can't hold him. And there's almost, there's almost a measure of, of, of humor in it. Do you see? When death and Jesus go toe-to-toe -to -toe and blow for blow in the ring, if Jesus comes out with such triumphant victory that he has time to fold the face cloth, to leave it aside. Well, now that that's done and he folds it and he leaves, do you see the mismatch of power? That death is punching way outside of its weight class. That the forces of darkness have taken on, from the forces of darkness side, an enemy that is much stronger than they. That our king reigns and death cannot hold him. He has not been stolen. He is risen. He's alive. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen, and this reminder, we see it. They saw it. They were eyewitnesses to it. Stones rolled away. Burial cloths are there. 
That third day, Jesus rises again to new life. He's risen. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw, he saw, he saw and believed. He trusted. He understood. He realized. Because verse 9 says, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture. They, they didn't get that he must rise from the dead, that he must rise from the dead. Then it says in verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. John and Peter see it firsthand, and it clicks. It all makes sense. All the pieces are falling together. He has risen, and he had to rise. You will not let your, your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That Jesus himself said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will, I will build it up again. It will rise again. He's talking about himself. And the disciples in this moment, as, as the adrenaline rush perhaps is, is still surging, but they're starting to make sense of what's going on, they're realizing all that the Scriptures say in anticipating the resurrection and all that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. All that He said is coming true right before their eyes. He's not taken. He's not stolen. He's risen. And that, my friends, offers hope that he must rise. Catch that little word in verse 9, that he must rise from the dead. It was all in the purposes and plans of God the Father. His sovereign unfolding will and mission for the world included the reality that Jesus must die and rise from the dead. And he, it wasn't just that he had to rise for the purposes of God, absolutely, but also that's good news for us. Because for the gospel to hold water, for the gospel to be true, for the gospel to have hope, that means we need an empty cross. We need an empty tomb. Because if he has not risen, why are we here? What hope is there? We've all seen death defeat. We need someone who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with death and have victory. And in Jesus Christ, we have that. He must rise, and he has. And that, my friends, offers hope. And if he really did rise, then there really, really is hope. Hope for the world, and hope for you, and hope for me. And my friends, we need hope. We, we've all, especially over these past uh, two, two and a half, three years, let alone all the time before that, is stirrings in your heart where you realize you need a kind of hope that, that's, that, that, that's deeper than just shallow offers of hope. You need something that goes beyond platitudes. You need something that goes beyond, well, 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 well just maybe things might get better. You need something deeper than that, do you not? And if you look inward and you're honest with yourself, hope's not there. Why? Because if I'm honest with myself, what's wrong with the world? I am. That the brokenness inside of me, I need something to come in and undo it and heal it and forgive it and redeem it. We can look outward to try to find hope. We can keep uh, uh, trying to advance things and tweak things in hopes that we might usher in our own utopia, that we might usher in our own paradise, but history keeps showing every time that we move the ball forward over here, the ball goes backward over there. 
We need a kind of hope not by looking inward, not by looking outward. We need a hope that comes from the outside in, from up, down. In, we need a hope that steps into creation. We need a hope that takes all of sin and death and decay and wrongdoing and injustice and brokenness and absorbs it into himself and leaves it in the grave, then rises again. And if Jesus really did rise, you have that hope and you have it in him. But look at this. See how pervasive this hope is. Check this out. It's, it's unexpected, but look at John 20, verse 1. I never saw this until I was studying again for this a message for this day. Check this out. John 20, verse 1. It says, now on the first day of the week, you might think, okay, not seeing it. <laughs> on the first day of the week, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say three days after the crucifixion or three days after the burial. Now, those things are essentially, they're saying the same thing. The point is, three days later, Jesus rise. But one commentator noted that the choice of this words in saying on the first day of the week is on purpose. It's intentional that what the gospel writer is doing here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is giving us a little wink back to the days of creation. First day of the week. Our minds go back to the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the book, and the first day God created, second day God created, third day God created, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. We see this creative, powerful God forming creation. And we see this little wink here back to a new creation unfolding in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, this new creative work unfolding before our eyes. And, and it, when I first stumbled onto that, I thought, well, you know, are we, are we, pushing, are we pushing the metaphor a little too far? You know, is this, preachers love this kind of stuff. Is this just kind of low-hanging fruit for, for those who like to teach? But then I started to peel back some of the layers of the onion. Go back a few verses. John chapter 19, verse 41. Catch this. Look at this as I read this. John 19:41 it says now in the place where Jesus was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid do you think that's on accident do you think that little detail was included you know just for context just to give us a setting or do you think there's something there that again we go to the beginning of the bible you know what we find a garden Eden, perfect paradise where we walked with God and walked with each other, humanity in perfect harmony with God and each other and creation. In Eden where there was no sin yet, no brokenness yet, no distrust yet, no social decay yet, that's where the Bible starts. You, know, you want to know where the Bible ends? The new Jerusalem, the garden city coming down. You know what we see at the end of the Bible? The tree of life again bearing fruit for the nations. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, humanity, society, all those who trust in Jesus, again, in perfect harmony with God and with each other. We're surrounded by this imagery of garden, and yet here we have in the very middle of the story, Jesus crucified and buried in a garden. But yet here it's slightly different, is it not? The tree of life is replaced by a cross of wood. 
At the very moment in Jesus' death and resurrection, we do not find creation, but the beginning of recreation, the beginning of new creation, the beginning of restoration and renewal. We go back even further, John chapter 19, verse 30, a few verses uh, uh, prior in the, John 19, Jesus says, one of his final words from the cross, Jesus says, it is finished, catch this, and then rests from his completed work in death in the tomb. The more I started to look at this, the more I start to realize how fitting this is, how, how brilliant God the Holy Spirit truly is to orchestrate all of these things. And it's no surprise that Jesus said in the same Gospel of John, in John chapter 12, verse 24, when he says, the hour has come, my time has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in that one word, glorified, we get a shorthand explanation of the rest of the journey, life, death, the burial, resurrection, and ascension. But then listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You think it's a coincidence that Jesus uses a gardening metaphor? What is happening? What is unfolding? On this first day of the week, we see the true and better Adam, the second Adam, initiate and inaugurate new creation, that through the, through the life of the failed man, Adam, our first parents, ushered in and entered in death and destruction and decay and sin and brokenness and injustice and, and all that is broken inside of me and in our world can be traced all the way back to our first parents, that sin has pervaded all of us inside of me and all around in our world. And yeah, through the disobedience of the first man, Adam, brings death. Through the obedience of the perfect man, Jesus, the perfect one, through his perfect life, ironically then through his death and resurrection, brings new life, life eternal. Jesus is untangling the curse. He is reversing the curse. And we see inaugurated in this resurrection, the moment of resurrection, new creation. Are we going to have a perfect world here and now before glory? No. We won't fully and finally see it till he returns again. But in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in the gospel, see what kind of hope this offers. What kind of hope this offers to you and me. That it means that history in the gospel, in Christ, for all those who put their faith and trust and hope in him, history and your life is not marching to its end but it's marching to its new beginning. And that gives you an ability to face the day. It gives you the ability to, to wake up and the brokenness that you see in this world no longer, no longer discourages you to despair. But it's because you know this world is broken and it needs to be recreated. And in glimpses and moments of, of restoration that we see now and here are small, small first fruits, small glimpses into the ultimate recreative, restorative power of God when He fully and finally returns. Do you see? It encourages us. It's, it makes us sober-minded to carry on. It gives us hope, a deep kind of hope, one that doesn't trivialize brokenness, 
The gospel says it's really bad. This world is really broken. The gospel is not going to trivialize the brokenness. And at the same time, the gospel offers us a hope that goes beyond platitudes, goes beyond just kind of wishful thinking. Well, maybe things will just turn out for the better. The gospel guarantees things will turn out to the better, and we, and we know that because Jesus has died and risen again. Here's the beautiful thing. Back to that metaphor that Jesus says, unless a seed is planted in the ground, it cannot bear fruit. Don't miss, don't miss what Jesus is profoundly saying. The resurrection means we don't just get it back, but we get it back better. We get it back to what it was truly supposed to be and intended to be and designed to be. It's all in the metaphor of this seed. Those of you with a green thumb, you know this. When you stick a seed into the dirt and it grows back, do you know what you don't get? You don't get just a bigger seed. <laughs> or you don't just get a bunch of seeds. You get something different. You get a lily. You get a rose. You get a flower something beautiful, that in that full expression of the flower, all that was written into the DNA was in the seed, but, but you know what it took? It took a death and resurrection to give fully what, what was designed to be. And that is the kind of hope the resurrection offers, and we need that kind of hope. We need that kind of hope. We need that kind of hope to face death, do we not? I know many of you have walked with people through those final moments of life. Do you see what kind of hope the gospel offers you even in moments of death? That all who are in Jesus Christ by faith, all who trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, that means that you are literally attached to Him, connected to Him. And if He died and rose, then so will you but here's the beautiful part. Even That's beautiful enough. We could stop there. But even more so, do you know what that means? That all those in Christ, and all of you here in Christ, when we die and, and go to heaven, we get it all back. But we get it back with resurrected bodies. We get it all back with, with creation, new creation, as it was designed and intended to be. We have no context for what paradise truly was in Eden or will be on that final day. All we know is a broken world. And even the most beautiful expressions of this world of, of, of art or music or, or creation, even the most beautiful things that we can find in this world will pale in comparison. It's just a seed. <laughs> just wait. Just wait till he comes again and all comes to its fruition and all is remade and renewed. We get it back. I've got some people who have gone before me that I can't wait to see again. I've got some people who have gone before me I can't wait to meet for the first time. There's a, there's a feast in heaven. Isn't that good news? There's food waiting for us in glory. As it should be. <laughs> Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, all the languages of the world, every skin tone and shade, all of those in Jesus Christ will be there. That offers us hope. And not just hope when we're talking about death or the final, the final moments of life, but it gives us a hope now for the present. 
Because if God is doing this work of renewal, again, we're not going to perfectly see it here and now. It's a work that He is doing, and it won't fully and finally come then. But it's a work that we can work for, that we can work for renewal and from renewal. Dear Christian, do you know what this does? It gives you a a motive to work from God's love for the good of your neighbors and for the good of others, from a motive that's not driven by guilt or a motive that's not driven by fear or even a selfish motive. I'm just going to serve my neighbor because it makes me feel good. Do you see what's happening? God is doing a renewing work in this world now through people transformed by the gospel, and we can carry on that work from renewal and for renewal. It means that as your dear Christian, dear brother and sister in Christ, as you're going out living your life, seeking to serve God, to worship Him, and to love others, it means that every bump in the road that you face, you know that you're going to make it through because He is risen. It, it means that every time you see a glimpse of gospel renewal take place here and now, it fills you with joy, but it's only still yet a foretaste, just a snapshot, just a glimpse of the full joy that we will experience then. Do you see what that does to the heart of a person? It keeps you from giving way to despair when you see brokenness in you or in our world. It motivates us to carry on, to be agents of gospel renewal, that the resurrection power of Jesus, that for all who trust him, have you yourself known and felt and seen that renewal take place in your life. He takes us, we who were dead in our trespasses and sin, God makes us alive together in Christ. And this is all a gift of grace. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the only way I know I can live is if that cross is empty and if that tomb is empty, and it is. He really did rise. And that means parents, public service workers, people in the medical profession and world, teachers, educators, those who work with your hands, all of us, every single one of us that has a small slice of creation that God has asked us to subdue and steward. It means that you can work from that hope of renewal as we wait that ultimate renewal when Christ comes again. We need hope. Everybody knows that. Look inside, you'll be discouraged. Look outside, you'll be delusioned. But if you look up to the hope that comes from the outside in, that hope will be yours. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us a sense of wonder and awe and grandeur for what you are doing Lord, I pray that you would give us an overwhelming sense of your love, that though we are broken, you came to die and rise again for us. May that give us a sense of encouragement as we face today and tomorrow and the days to come. May that encourage those who are wearied by brokenness that we see in this world. May that be an encouragement that transforms a soul, even here today. Perhaps someone's hearing this for the first time, or perhaps it's resonating to a heart level for the first time. Maybe, Lord, even here, even now, in the quietness of 
a person's heart, may they pray and trust, and they themselves be a testimony to the transformative resurrection power of the gospel in them. Add more to your family. Why not today? We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org. 